and it is Jesus who makes this a glorious day. Welcome, welcome to this morning's broadcast. Glad you could join us. Today, we return to our consideration of the ancient church of Pergamum. We'll see that the remedy for sexual sin and every other kind of sin is true repentance, which is always a combination of sorrow for sin and changed behavior. And now, with his message for this morning, our senior pastor, Robert Elliott. So the first thing the Bible uh, notes when attention is turned to it in ancient Pergamum is that it is the sword of the scriptures. It is in the Lord Jesus Christ's hand. The second thing we note from Revelation 2 verse 13, and I'll read the verse, and I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. The second thing to be noted here is that in ancient Pergamum, it was a place that God deemed that Satan dwelt. Satan, according to God's estimation, had a throne there in Pergamum. In other words, Satan actually had ancient Pergamum as one of his mailing addresses. Why was that? Ancient Pergamum was a satanic stronghold. It had more than one likely candidate for the so-called throne of Satan. Dr. John MacArthur points out the following in his study Bible's notes. On Pergamum's Acropolis was a huge throne-shaped altar to Zeus. And Ascapolos, the god of healing, was the one god most associated with ancient Pergamum. His snake-like form is still the medical symbol today. Pergamum had a famous medical school that mixed generous parts of medicine with equally generous parts of superstition. One prescription called for the worshiper to sleep on the temple floor, allowing snakes to crawl all over his body and infuse him with their healing power. That's satanic, end quote. But not too long ago in my pastoring, I had a person come to me professing to have faith in Christ for salvation and at the same time singing the praises of Native American sweat houses and Native American medicine men to heal physical, emotional, and spiritual ailments. Truth be known, we all live in areas that can be strongholds of Satan right now. But Satan, we learn here, lived in ancient Pergamum. Satan resides around the Bahamas. We need to walk in the light. When Christians share an address with Satan, there are going to be occasional casualties. And verse 13 speaks of that. The risen Christ says to Pergamum, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Tradition tells us that Antipas was the pastor of the church at ancient Pergamum. He was also a dentist and a physician. Evidently, the snake charmer medicine men suspected him of propagating Christianity, so they accused him of disloyalty to Caesar. He was condemned to death and was shut up in a brass or copper bull statue furnace, which was heated 
until it was red hot, a torturous way to die. And how did the other Christians in Brother Antipas's local church react to his murder? Not with fear, not by renouncing faith in Christ, and not with retaliation. Verse 13 again, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. They remained true to Christ. They had courage of conviction. And may we have the same courage of conviction if there ever are casualties due to Satan's throne spreading out into our places of ministry and we have a persecution on the church that requires our lives, that people would lay down their lives to remain loyal to Christ. May we, like the saints at Pergamum, may we have courage of conviction to remain true to our Lord Jesus Christ. We move on, verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you because you there have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Thus, you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Even in this courageous local church, there were serious problems. In fact, they had a serious doctrinal error. They had come to embrace and believe a lie. To be specific, they were holding to the one heresy that went by two names. The heresy was that sexual immorality at idolatrous feasts could be combined with Christianity and God would be fine with it. One name for this heresy was the teaching of Balaam. That's what the first part of verse 14 says. This was because back in Israel's history, a prophet named Balaam took money from an enemy of Israel named Balak, and Balak was the king of Moab. Balaam took Balak's money to bring Israel down. Balaam attempted to do this by attempting to involve Israelite men in Moabite religious feasts, which included sacred prostitution. You can read about that in the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 25, if you wish. Balaam knew that if Israelite men sexually sinned with Moabite prostitutes, then Israel would come under God's chastening judgment. And this would include military defeat at the hands of the Moabites. Now, in the ancient church at Pergamum, the pagans were enticing Christians into sexual sin at their pagan feasts. And the second name for this heresy of sexual immorality by believers is the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That's verse 15, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Apparently, some believers in Pergamum were committing sexual sin at these pagan parties under the erroneous belief that a man named Nicholas taught, namely, that God's grace gives total sexual license. So, in ancient Pergamum, we have a courageous church on the one hand that was also sexually corrupt in parts on the other hand. Perhaps the North American evangelical church today is in exactly the same precarious and sad situation as Pergamum. 
oh, not maybe with cult prostitutes at feast meals, but with sexual addictions in the pews and pornography and prostitution and infidelity, sweethearting, cyber sex, sexual sin by print, by picture, by voice, in person, on the internet, all conspiring to lie to us that somehow God's grace gives believers like us a total license with respect to sexual misadventure. The more things change, the more they stay the same. So what's the remedy? Verse 16 gives us the remedy. Repent, therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. The remedy is repent. That is, change your mind so that it changes your behavior. A changed mind without a changed behavior is not repentance. A changed behavior without a changed mind is not repentance. Repentance is the combination of a changed mind that changes behavior. And such repenting requires judging oneself properly, correctly, calling sin, sin, fleeing Satan and his temptations which are tailored for you, getting an accountability partner, of your own gender. It was Martin Luther who said, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you certainly can keep them from making a nest in your hair. We are all tempted with sexual sin and other kinds of sin. We can't keep the birds from flying over our heads, but we can and should and must keep the birds from making a nest in our hair. And so the remedy for sexual sin is, as is the remedy for all sin is repent. Change your mind so that it changes your behavior judge yourself aright. And if you, you do that, God won't have to judge you. But if you don't do that, God will have to judge you. And now it's time for Youth Talk with Pastor Nicholas Rogers. Good morning. This is Pastor Nicholas. And I hope this morning that as we have come together that we are ready to hear what God has to say. And we want to just start a series talking about Jesus and culture and how Jesus impacted his culture. And we live in a world today where our culture is throwing so many things at us. And the question become, what do we do with those things? How do we respond to culture? How do we respond to worldly things? There are some times where people think that the church is just quiet on different issues. But we need to understand as a church and as Christians, we need to take a stand. And as a young person, when you consider what you are doing in your school, as school is getting ready to open up, and even now during the summer, what, what are you doing to impact those around you? What are you doing to impact your house that you live in? And this morning, we want to talk about Jesus and culture, how we are in this world, but we need to be not of the world. We need to understand that we need not to isolate ourselves from everything of this world, but we need to penetrate this world with the gospel of Christ and tell others about Christ. And I always want to just read as we, we consider God's word and what God's word tells us about how we can impact the world and how we need to understand that when we impact the world, there's going to be people that don't like us. And we need to understand that in our, in our lives and as we go about life, if everyone likes us, then we're doing something wrong. Because everyone cannot like if you take a stand against things of this world, things that are evil, things that God is not pleased with. And this is what Jesus in, in, in John 15 said. And this is something that we need to understand as believers because I think sometimes we think that we are to fit in this world. We are to be comfortable. But this is what he said in verse 18. It says this in chapter 15. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. 
However, because you are not of this world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all things because to you on account of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. Again, these couple of verses we see, first of all, as Jesus is talking, he makes it very clear that the world is going to hate you. The culture is going to hate you because we need to understand that in our world, we are not supposed to fit in. We are not supposed to just stand in and, and just be a, a shadow and just allow things to happen. But we are to take a stand. And Jesus makes it very clear that they hated him. So what makes us, as we call ourselves children of God, what makes us think that the world's not going to hate us? Now, you may say hate is a strong word. And hate is a strong word. Hate means that you strongly dislike something, that you don't want anything to do with it. And that is what Jesus is saying here, that the world is not going to want you because you're going to take a stand for what totally against the world. In verse 19, it said this, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. You see, this is the problem for us as believers, as youth, as, as we think about us as young people. We want to fit in as much as we can. We want to be loved. We want to be accepted. We want to be popular by popular. We want people to love us. We want people to accept us. And I think that this is the problem that a lot of young people face today is that they don't care about what the Bible says, but they care what their friends say, what people think about them, what the school thinks. You see, we need to understand that we are living in a culture, even in our country, where in some schools, the name of Jesus is not even able to be said. A Bible is something that you are not allowed to read. You see, we need to understand this is coming very close to the home for us. And you may be saying, well, that doesn't happen to all our schools, but it's happening in some. And who knows what can happen as, you know, we think about this, this country in the next couple of years. We as Christians need to take a stand. We as, as you, as young people, you need to understand that you need to take a stand. You need to tell people that I'm going to take a stand for Christ no matter what. And let me just also say this. You need to understand that you need not to take your, your parents' faith and let it be yours, but you need to have your own faith. You need to know what you believe. You need to under, let culture not dictate to you, but you need to let God's word as you study it daily. You see, we can't just live on what the church tells us to do, but we need to know what we need to do on our own. And that's why this verse in verse 19 is very key to what we want to think about. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. You see, if the world's accepting you and they love you, that means something is contrary to what God's word tells us. You see, we need to understand that as, as we follow Christ, the world is not going to like us. The world is going to hate us. And it says this in, in that same verse, However, because you are not of this world, but I have chosen you, you are out of it. The world hates you. You see, we do live in the world. We are in this world, but we need to be not of the world. We need not to be following the patterns of the world, but we need to be different. And I think that that's the problem that we have. We need not to, because there are some people who take the extreme to say, well, that means I need to be isolated. I need to be shut up in my room and locked in my room and, and don't worry about what the world has to offer. But that's not true as well. We need to know what's going on around us, but we need to allow it, let it you know, consume us, let it control us, because that's what the world wants. We need to be very careful. It's a very fine line that we need to be very careful of. You know, as I could think of in, in my life, when I was in school, you know, I, I wanted to be accepted by people. 
I did things that I knew was contrary to what the Bible said. I knew it was contrary to my beliefs. But because that's what everyone else was doing, you know, I wanted to do it. And I think that that's the problem that we have today, that we want this, this acceptance from everyone. And when we take a stand and when people don't like us, we feel like, you know, that something is wrong with us. But we need to understand that God is telling us that we have to be different. Verse 20 says this, Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And I just want to just finish off with this verse. And I want us to understand something here. And it says this, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. You see, this is very key for us to understand because this is not telling us that if persecution comes your way, but it's saying that it's going to come. Because if you're following Christ and you are a servant of his, they're going to persecute you. You see, we live in a world where there are places around this world that, you know, just to say the name of Jesus, it's offensive. You could talk about any other religion, but when you talk about Christianity, you talk about God's word, people don't want to hear it. You could be thrown in prison for it. You could be persecuted. You'd be killed for that. And a question for us as we consider this, and as you're a young person, as you are, are listening to this, I want to ask you a question. What are you willing to die for? Are you willing to die just so that, that you are accepted by your friends and you just want to follow them and do what they want and, and just survive? Or are you really willing to take a stand for Christ? And if it means death, you're willing to die for him. You see, we need to understand that's what God is calling us to do right now. He's calling us to understand that persecution is coming our way. What are you going to do as a young person? Are you going to take a stand for Christ, no matter what it means to you, whether the world hates you or not? Are you willing to take a stand for him? I would challenge you this morning as you consider this, that you would ask God to help you to take a stand, no matter what happens to you, because we know that it will be hard. But what greater joy than to take a stand for Christ and know that you stood up for the truth and that you had done what your Father in heaven wants you to do. And now, today's ministry spotlight. Well, this morning I'm grateful <laughs> to have in the radio studio with me, Dr. Marlene Heiler. Good morning. Good morning. In my ministry here in the Bahamas, unfortunately what I see is one of the most usual bricks in a wall of lies are men who have lied to their girlfriend in courting that they are a Christian. And they're not even a Christian. She wakes up to find out somewhere down the line, he doesn't love the Lord. He doesn't trust the Lord. He doesn't want to be in the Lord's word. He doesn't be with God's people. What would you say to the, the woman who's been betrayed that way, the Christian wow. That's hard. But one of the realities as a Christian woman in terms of being a spiritual Christian woman, meaning a woman who is yielded to the Holy Spirit in her life, yes, is that if you wake up and you look around, what you see, and it's hard to explain, only in heaven we'll be able to explain this, but what you see is what God wants for now. Yes. We can't unpack what happened yesterday. Okay, so Lord, what do you want for now? And in terms of what God would want for now, one is... This is a vow you made. And right. the scripture said, you do not make a vow and not pay it. Correct. And so even though he may not be a believer and he lied, it doesn't give you an excuse 
to leave the marriage at this point because that would not honor God and you wouldn't be fulfilling your well. You now have to realize that you have a ministry. Right, exactly. And your ministry would be to woo this man to Christ. Mm-hmm. And in terms of wooing him, sometimes, and the scripture tells us this, it's not going to be with your words. Exactly. It's going to have to be with you loving him unconditionally. Yes. With you being wise. For instance, you can't go to church seven nights a week. <laughs> right. And win him to Christ. And woo him to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's big in the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. You, you don't see it as much now, but I remember years ago, some women would even go to work with curlers in their hair for church that night. <laughs> really? <laughs> I've seen that. Ooh. I've seen that. Being so sanctified. And you wonder if you spend seven nights in church or six nights or even five nights in church, how are you gonna how are you building your family? So If your husband is lost, now you have to make some intentional choices. You have to bring Christians around him. You have to basically be Jesus and demonstrate Mm -hmm. Jesus to him. And it may not be easy. That sounds like a Holy Spirit-sized job. It is. He has to do it through that woman. Exactly. And uh, just wanted to point out two chapters for the, the woman who's finding herself in this situation. One is 1 Peter 3, the first six verses, and the other chapter is 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Peter 3 says that uh, such a husband can be won without a word from the wife by her gentle and quiet spirit. Um, And then 1 Corinthians 7, in its essence, says if you are married to an unbeliever and he is willing to stay married to live with you, then don't you leave him because in staying with him, you will be a sanctifying influence on him and any children you have. So uh, I so appreciate you understanding the necessity before God of keeping our vow, even if we have been betrayed. God can bring good out of bad. Wonderful. Is there any other um, marriage-related problem you would like to mention? One is, again, this is to Christians. It's scientifically proven that in the Christian community, we, we don't do family balance well. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not there originally, but I was there for the anniversary many years ago. This would be probably over 30 years ago in Colorado. A group of ministers got together discussing, this was before marriage and family counseling and marriage and family Ministries were in churches because at one time, I mean, you just came to church. You didn't have marriage ministries in church. But that gathering helped people realize that we did need marriage ministries. Right. And out of that, so I was at the reunion of those people reflecting on, okay, what has happened? 20 some, 30 years has happened since we've had marriage ministries. What has come out of that? And Two major things came out of it. One was, um, and, and some Christian therapist said, I want to become a missionary for sex. People think it's Christian. You know, once you're married to this person, to put on the granny pajamas. Some, you're making me laugh. <laughs> My some, wife doesn't do that. I'm, I'm so glad. <laughs> some Christian wise are, are, need more liberation when it comes, and they need help when it comes to sex in the marriage. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a reality that we need to deal with. And some Christian men 
uh, are caught up in pornography. All of these are major issues that need to be dealt with. But I just want to mention, if that's a reality in your marriage, this is something that we need to deal with biblically. Call the pastor, call the Christian counselor. It needs to be dealt with. But the other issue that came out of the reunion was that Christians either on one extreme or the other a family. So we we nourish we nurture our family so much and we love our family so much we're doing it at the expense of the church. And so because I want to be home for my kids homework and because what we're doing at home is so quote unquote special Christian families sometimes are not as active in the church as they need to be. Mm. And I, I mean, I've even had that. Um, sometimes I would panic when I understand. I hear from Sunday school teachers that the parents are telling the kids they have too much homework to do, so they're not, they can't, they can't practice their Bible verses. Mm-hmm. And Christian parents sometimes aren't helping the children do their homework for Sunday school because they're so busy with whatever is going on at home. Also, in relation to that, um, I know in our church, the Awana ministry, and I know we're in transition, but a lot of the Awana ministry basically was non-Christians or people from elsewhere. And, and even though it's just such we have such a wonderful children's program, our Christian families sometimes are not taking advantage of all that's being offered in the church, which could be helping them build their family and build their children. So that's one extreme. Where we're so, our family's so busy and we're doing whatever we do at home, we're not as engaged at church. Or we're so engaged at church that we are not nurturing as much as we need to do at home. And so Christians haven't found a good balance. Right. We're finding. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would think, for the Christian to have that balance, maybe you need an objective voice speaking to the dad of that family saying, what I've observed is this, and I mean it, I love you guys as a, as a family, but could you consider that um, you're just uh, so dominated by church program that you don't have any time together? But that takes that takes a loving person to ask that question. But see, but you saying that, it means that as a body of Christ, we probably need to be more honest. Yes. And it needs to be okay for the persons in the church, for the pastor, yes. to be honest with us. Yes. I learned the hard way because early in my pastoral ministry, I had a severe burnout that led to a depression. And uh, when I got looking at it with a counselor's help, it had a lot to do with um, me being perfectionistic as a pastor and thinking I had to measure up to certain uh, expectations and just be f- totally involved in being a pastor. And I ceased being a, a, a person, really. I remember being on the beach with my wife and I was struggling with this depression. And she said, what are you thinking right now? And I said, well, actually, I'm thinking how I used to like Christmas before I became a pastor. Wow. And then we got thinking about it and what happened was we, we came to the, with God's help, to the picture of, of cookie dough, that I saw myself as cookie dough, that um, was being rolled out flat on a kitchen counter, and then a certain shape cookie cutter was bang, bang. And I was being pressed by the cookie cutter shape, and all the dough of me that was outside of that particular caricature was being thrown away, and it didn't feel good. Wow. And so I had to learn uh, through those things. So 
Becoming imbalanced is almost as easy as falling off of a log, but not just for pastors, but for the people, precious people in the pew. These are really important things. You've been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship services are at 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. in our sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We encourage you to join us. Feel free to write us at eocradio at gmail.com. That's eocradio at gmail.com or P.O. Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And remember, everyone needs a savior.